The Confluence Story Gathering Podcast is a production of Confluence, a community-supported nonprofit that connects people to the history, living cultures, and ecology of the Columbia River system. Find us at confluenceproject.org. What the memory of Celilo plays for me is that it fosters and deepens my sense of resilience because we've survived that. And that's an important thing to remember because reminding me of how traumatized I am doesn't help me. Reminding me of how resilient I am does. Welcome to the Confluence Story Gathering Podcast, Indigenous Voices of the Columbia River. I'm Colin Fogarty, Executive Director of Confluence. Story gathering has two meanings. We gather together and we gather stories. In this case, stories from a native perspective. In this episode, we're going to hear from a storyteller and ethnographer, Josiah Pinkham, a member of the Nimipu, or Nez Perce tribe in Lapway, Idaho. He was one of several native thinkers and leaders who spoke at a confluence story gathering at Lewis Clark State College in Lewiston, Idaho. Josiah is going to introduce himself and he's going to share some stories he heard from tribal elders about life at Celilo Falls. The falls were one of the greatest fisheries in North America and a spiritual and cultural stronghold until they were flooded by the Dalles Dam in 1957. Here's Josiah. Well, I'm Josiah Black Eagle Pinkham, and I'm a member of the Nespers tribe, and um, I've been in cultural resource work for, well, geez, decades now. A lot of that knowledge and experience comes from my family, of course, but I entered into the cultural resource program in the mid-90s and really haven't gone and worked anywhere else. The additional fortune I have is that I was able to take a lot of people around to interview them about different places, and um, many of my trips took me down the Columbia River to visit with elders like um, Silas and my father here, others, and... Geez, I, I I still get pretty impressed by the fact that I get paid for that because that's really a passion that I have is just, you know, sitting with my elders and visiting with them and, you know, trying to absorb as much as I can. In my work, I used to take people down the river and there's a man, an Esperance man named Julius Ellenwood, and we stopped at Celilo. And he got out, and he walked off by himself, and I allowed him his space, and then I went up and I, um, I stood by him, because he, he looked extremely pensive. He was looking at the ground, and he goes, I feel bad for you, Josiah. And I go, well, what's going on, Julius? And he goes, you'll never, ever know what Celilo smelled like, what it sounded like. The rush of that water was just deafening. He said, I can't, I can't give you that experience. You know, just thinking about that moment, I remember the sadness in his voice. And, you know, that's, that's trauma that affects people that didn't even experience it. I mean, that's how, how deep that, that loss is felt. And, you know, that's, that's one aspect of it. And another aspect of it is um, I took um, Ipsus Newt, Jesse Green down there. And this guy's this guy just a legend. And, like, he was the linchpin in many aspects of securing Nesper's rights and connections and pathways to that, that part of the river. And he talked about being down there for two weeks and he could catch enough fish 
to sustain himself throughout the whole year because he, w- he could you know, put it away and he could sell it. I mean, that's, that's the financial aspect of what was given by Salilo Falls. What I'm about to tell you is gathering from a few different sources, a few different individuals that um, I visited with about different aspects of Salilo. But there was this, um, this man... His uh, name in Nespers was Mamatskokoch, and Mamatskokoch is those birds that you find at the headwaters that'll stand by the water like that, and they'll, they'll, they'll almost dance, and then they'll jump into the water, and they'll swim, and they'll pop up on the other side. Water oozles or water dippers. That was his waiakin or his uh, tutelary spirit. He spent quite an amount of time at Salilo. He would go down there and fish and... Um, the custom for the men that would gather along the um, along the falls, they would tie themselves off because um, they say that you know once you go in there, you just put your head between your knees and kiss it goodbye because you're not coming out of there. Most of the people that fell into the water would succumb to being dashed up against the rocks. They'd be knocked out or you know killed in that manner. Families lost individuals to the water like that. Uh, many times and when this man would come and stand on the scaffold he would never tie off and the people that knew about that practice and why it was done but were new to the river experience would ask you know how come that man he's not tying off and they just say oh you know that's that's mamat's koko that's the way he is and as he would fish he would get struck by his power and it would call him into the water and there he would go. This old man would fall into the falls like that. And of course, they were concerned by this. When he would fall into the water, it drew so much concern that some people would go along the bank, you know, trying, you know, waiting for him to come out so they could fish him out of the water. And, you know, downstream, he would kind of crawl out of the water like that. You know, they were surprised that he survived it. And he'd collapse onto the shore and he'd stand over him and he'd say, Oh, I want a drink of water. <laughs> and he'd get up and he'd go off and he'd find a family and he'd sit with them. And he wouldn't talk about what he was um, experiencing and doing beneath the surface of the, the falls until late in life as such, you know, our ways. But um, what he described was that his power would call him in and he'd sacrifice. And there he'd go. And he'd hear that voice that would tell him, swim this way, don't go that way, go over here. And he'd do exactly what that that spirit voice told him until he emerged on the other side. And then he would get struck with, you know, again, this this, um, prescription that he would take to a family and he would sit with them. And those families were ones that lost an individual to the water like that. And he would tell them, this is what you're supposed to do. And they would take that prescription, whatever that was, and they'd go off and they'd do it. And later, the body of that loved one would surface. So this man was living a life of sacrifice by adhering to spiritual accords or spiritual covenants so that he could help those people in mourning because we all know the importance of having a body when you when you lose a loved one like that 
It's an aspect of the mourning process that we can't really describe, but we know that it's important. So that's what this man had, was this powerful connection to this water, to these, these falls. And he lived that life of sacrifice. And that was healing. And see, when that water filled in Celilo Falls, we can't really grasp exactly what we lost. We only know that it's traumatic and it carries on. That trauma is so deep that it's multi-generational. Because of stories like that, that foster our connections that were severed. You know, I, I took my father down there and he was coming back from the Marine Corps and he talked about how he felt seeing all that flat water. He said his heart dropped because he knew the connections that that fostered for our people. And so if you look at those stories, you know, just describing the aspects of what Celilo blessed us with, you can see what connections were lost. But what the, what the memory of Celilo plays for me is that it fosters and deepens my sense of resilience because we've survived that. And that's an important thing to remember because reminding me of how traumaed I am doesn't help me. Reminding me of how resilient I am does. That's where my power lies. Because I look to my old people and look at what they survived. That's what I have to carry forth. Very important difference. Big distinction. You're listening to Nez Perce storyteller Josiah Pinkham talking about life at Celilo Falls. He was speaking at a Confluence story gathering in Lewiston, Idaho. In the second part of the evening, the stories turned to tribal lifeways and Josiah's sense of responsibility to preserve those lifeways. Partway through his recollections, you'll also hear from Silas Whitman, a Nez Perce elder who also spoke at the story gathering. Again, here's Josiah. When we lose a spiritual entity like Celilo, it whittles away at our ability to conduct our lifestyle, to exercise our way of life in the way that our predecessors did generations ago. The Nespers people struck out an agreement with the United States to give land to the United States for its citizens to live on. So we gave the United States land so that you guys could be here in our territory. And we reserved some of that for ourselves. And we maintained connections with places off reservation. We have rights to those areas. And I'm not really comfortable with the term rights because it takes away from the idea that rights are actually vessels for this sacred substance called responsibility. That's a better way to look at it. Saying I have rights carries with it this false sense of entitlement. That's not the way that my old people raised me. They raised me as a person of responsibility that I have kids to feed, I have elders to take care of. And so when something like Celilo goes its way, I have to look for places to replace that pathway for responsibility. And it whittles away at what I have to you know, provide for my people. 
So I think that's an important aspect to think about when um, when we look at you know uh, land loss, um, things like that. It's 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 really difficult. And then I have to replace you know going out and getting fish or getting elk or whatever. You know I have to go to Walmart. I have to go to McDonald's. And that's a tough transition to make because um, the way that our people are taught to look at something like Salilo, that's why I, I chose the, the, the phrase, you know, a spiritual entity because that's the way that our people feel about it. Now, this is just the honest truth. Making that transition into English and passing these, um, these types of concepts, very complex ideals, is, is not easy to do. There's a lot lost in translation. A lot. Very significant. Yo. <laughs> Believe me, he knows what he's talking about there. He, um, he, he pulled that on his dad and I. We went on a field trip with the Forest Service. We stopped in a delicatessen up there in Grangeville. So we go and say, okay, we better take stuff off for lunch. All right. So, so we got the gut, gut bomb there and we got pop chips. So, so we get up there to eat. You know, oh, we'll have lunch here, and I'll ask for a blessing and so forth. And Alan and I are sitting there. He's sitting over here, and he's looking at us. Gee, you guys, that sure looks good. Look at me, I'm just a poor Indian boy. All I got is smoked salmon. I got mess here and some other roots I'm eating. And I draw a jar of spring water from a home. That's all I got. <laughs> His dad and I look at each other thinking we were <laughs> Nice guy. <laughs> Those are the kind of things that preserve our initiatives for is to provide that, that type of sustenance back again. That means bringing back those cultural resources that are hanging out that we're trying to you know, put that into our small children and make them ask for that. <laughs> it's not true. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm pretty thankful to grow up in my sacred homeland to have, you know, these connections and values that were passed on to me. So it's like, you know, <laughs> looked out and that one yeah. <laughs> came out of Nespers. And the other part of it is, and I try not to go here, but I think to myself, God, white people. I mean, there's just such a stark difference in how they express their connection and, 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 and value for things that outsiders kind of take for granted. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to put that fairly, but outsiders are up against such a tremendous learning curve. I mean, I'm just trying to be fair and honest here because... If you look at the connections that I have in my value hierarchy for the things that I take care of, there's a pretty stark difference in the way that those are interpreted and understood by outsiders. And so, like, to give you an example, I like talking about, like, language because that's just, I, I, I geek out on, on language differences because of how language programs the person that speaks that language, whether it's mother language or, you know, otherwise. English language is um, a nominally based language, meaning that an English speaker goes into a void and labels stuff and categorizes it for manipulation. That's why English is, 
such a successful colonial language. You go in, you look at it, boom, you pull it together. Nez language, on the other hand, is verbally based. And you don't get fluent in Nez unless you master five different tenses. Present, future, distant future, past, distant past. And so what a speaker in Nez is doing is being born into a void and participating in divine movement. That's a big difference. Because when you focus on the stuff, you have to basically work a little bit harder to help them understand the connections between things. It can be done, but it takes a little bit more work. Me, on the other hand, I'm looking at the movement of things and how they're related. That's just something that comes along with the territory, a different model of learning. And to perpetuate that, you know, Nespers people have been saying, you know, we've been here forever, and archaeology keeps getting pushed back. Wow, you guys have been here for a thousand years. Wow, 1,500 years, 2,000, 6,000, 15,000. So with that, I have to look at all of that experience and the choices that I make about, you know, what I do and the responsibilities that I tend to, the values that I'm tending to. I have to incorporate that into the decision so that Nespers people will be here 15,000 years from now. That's the responsibility that I have, that I'm up against. So that's why I say, I mean, you know, outsiders are up against a tremendous learning curve because you don't have the sense of um, community that I have. So like it took, it took sitting with a kindergarten for me to like really understand the sense of community that I have because um, one of my sons came home from kindergarten and he had these a list of questions that he had to respond to to incorporate into a book. And my son said, um, or one of the questions was, uh, tell a story about your family. And my son, you know, being five years old, he immediately went to, you know, I want to tell the story about coyote and buffalo bull. And I'm sitting there and I was kind of split because I was thinking, I think the question is talking about maybe... You know, your parents, your grandparents, etc. And I had the awareness to stop myself and call attention to the fact that here is my son, five years old, a kindergartner, and his sense of community includes animal people. His sense of family goes that far. I mean, if you look at family in, in, in Nesper society, there's there's a reason why... I call my first and second cousins, etc., brothers and sisters. That term cousin removes that individual from the nuclear family. There's distance there. But for me, I'm expected to step up and refer to my first cousins, second cousins, etc., as brothers and sisters. So therefore, I have that huge support network. I've got a bunch of grandparents, a bunch of grandchildren, carry that on both ways, and I've got a huge support network, but I've also got a lot of responsibility because I have to take care of that so that support network is going to be there for my, my sons, my children, my grandchildren. I mean, that has to keep going. That's why they say that we, we, we have a different way of looking at the world. It's true, and that's all packed into language. And grandparents... 
grandchildren, those terms are reciprocal. So the reverence that we have for our grandparents is cast on to our grandchildren too. Because what those individuals are doing is carrying on a reciprocal relationship where they're training these grandchildren to be like them. That's a high expectation. That was Nez Perce storyteller and ethnographer Josiah Pinkham speaking at a Confluence story gathering in Lewiston, Idaho. To learn more about the Nez Perce people, go to nezperce.org. A special thanks to our host for the Lewiston Confluence Story Gathering, the Center for Arts and History at Lewis Clark State College. To find out more about Confluence and the five completed sites along the Columbia River system, check out our website, confluenceproject.org. And remember, Confluence is a community-supported nonprofit. We can only do this work because of the generous support from the Friends of Confluence, and that's you. Thanks for listening to the Confluence Story Gathering podcast. For more episodes, visit us at confluenceproject.org or find us wherever you get your podcasts.